Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy you could join us. And we have a new voice that we are welcoming to this week's episode. We'd like to welcome Carolyn Bolton. And Carolyn, I know you're a Young Voices contributor, but I suspect you wear a few other hats as well. Would you take just a moment, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I do. Thanks so much for having me on, Brian. It's a pleasure. Um, so I am the communications and marketing manager for a place called Donors Trust, and we uh, manage charitable giving accounts for conservatives and libertarians. Okay. I'm a fan of charitable giving just because I know this is radical. I believe there are some things that can and probably should be solved without involving government. So, uh, chari- and, and people would be shocked, I think, if, if they uh, were to really understand just how much charitable giving goes on at, uh, at any given time. If they've never worked in the nonprofit sector, they might not be aware of that. Same. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are fans of, of charitable giving. And in fact, the piece I wrote would um, help the 70% of Americans who who don't itemize their taxes, but nonetheless give to charity and or want to give to charity. So let's talk about your article. This is an article published in the centersquare.com. Universal charitable deduction helps people address needs in their own backyard. I already like the sound of that, but I have to admit, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of new to the term universal char- charitable deduction. Could you explain to me what that is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So to, to give a little background and context, um, a bipartisan group of lawmakers last year um, tried to enact unsuccessfully um, a similar piece of legislation uh, last year, and it would have enhanced and made permanent um, a temporary universal deduction um, enacted during COVID. It was enacted during, you know, when, when Congress passed the big, big COVID relief bill, and it was this provision that allowed people to take um, a deduction and a, uh, for charitable, charitable gifts up to $300. Um, you know, taking that charitable deduction is usually reserved for people who itemize, people have, who have mortgage interests they can deduct um, on their taxes or people who have medical bills, uh, people who give a lot to charity. Um, but, but this legislation would have made giving more inclusive, you know, to the everyday men and women who give to their place of worship or a local food bank or local charity addressing a unique need in, in their hometown or home state. So where does it stand right now in terms of the, the legislative process? Did it gain any traction? So it, it was introduced in the Senate, um, and it, it's trying, it's winding its way through Congress. Hopefully it'll get passed. Um, yeah, there's a coalition of us who are, who are trying desperately. <laughs> Hopefully it'll get passed this year. I think people would be surprised to realize that for uh, up until 1913, Americans kept almost 100% of their paychecks. I mean, they, there was no income tax. And, and I, I'm not trying to make the case, therefore repeal the 16th Amendment right away. But my point is, charitable donations were what took care of many of the needs. I mean, you look at the expansive growth this country experienced from its inception up until that time, and there was a lot that went on, and it all happened without uh, you know the transfer through taxes to government, who then decides, okay, this is what we're going to take care of. Yeah, and it's so discouraging. You know, I saw so many headlines during the pandemic that said, you know, this chunk of change that Congress set aside for housing, well, it never made it to the people who needed it because bureaucracy is so bloated and ineffective. And same with um, a bunch of money set aside during COVID for schools. Uh, and it never, it never made it to more independent schools the way it did to public schools. So private philanthropy is necessary and needed. And this legislation would just create um, a better culture of 
philanthropy and one that's just more inclusive and more representative of, of American values. In your, uh, in your essay, you talk about uh, a Kentucky charity that uh, has, has, is proof that this kind of thing could work. Tell me a little bit about that charity. Sure. Yeah, it's called Deviate, and it's a found. It was started by a couple who they had a lot of experience in the restaurant industry um, and hospitality, and they started a couple of restaurants in Kentucky. And they were noticing, hey, yeah, our our workers, they're called, they're quitting after after two weeks. What gives? Um, and they realized a lot of their employees, you know, struggled with drug dependency, and they're like, we we can't just let this slide. Like we have to do something. We have to help. So that's when they kind of reimagined their whole enterprise and they created this nonprofit component um, that kind of works in concert with their for-profit restaurants. And it's just triage, just helping people in their local community who are suffering from drug addiction. So how, how would this charitable act help them and other charities like them? Yeah. So people in the local community, you know, locals who are struggling with drug addiction, it would, you know, it's kind of like the, like the term politics are local. Issues in a certain region or state are tend to be local to the region or, or unique to the region or state. Like the problems in rural and suburban Kentucky are going to be different from the problems in the Bay Area or Southern California, you know, where homelessness is more of an issue. Um, but in Kentucky, uh, drug fatalities were second only to West Virginia in 2020, which is the first year wow. that CDC has numbers <laughs> available on the issue. Um, but I might not necessarily know that, you know, as someone who lives in Virginia um, or, you know, I'm from Rhode Island or originally. So, you know, people up north might, they don't, they don't have the same issues. Their friends aren't necessarily going through the same things, but this would empower a local who, you know, maybe isn't a Jeff Bezos or um, a Mark Zuckerberg who doesn't have, you know, gobs of money to throw around, but they want to help nonetheless, um, it would empower them to give a little money to charities, charities that are either doing triage in their local communities, like helping people climb out of that dependency, or even state-based charities that are just creating ways to, to fix these problems and help people, um, help people going, you know, suffering from the drug epidemic in this country. Um, so it's really, it's really important. And I think it'd be a really targeted, effective way to help and to help effectively. So I have to ask, who stands in the way of this or who, who would be in opposition to something like this? You know, I don't know. It's just, there's so many, you know, Congress has so much on its plate. There's so many bills um, that, that sadly, you know, never, never make it out of committee. So many great pieces of legislation. Um, you need leverage, <laughs> you need leverage, you need people, you need a coalition of people saying, hi, hi, Congress, hello. <laughs> My writing to their Congress people and saying, "Hey, this is really important. Um, this this is helpful. You know, you know, building that coalition." There, there, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, and, and I assume this this is hopefully this is this is not just you know, well, people are just looking for tax breaks, and that's the only reason anybody would donate to charity. I know there are those who would reduce it to, well, if you're just looking for tax breaks, we'll just adjust the tax code. But that's not the real reason why most people give to charity, is it? No, I know that is the argument some people use, like, oh, it's just bad tax policy. But in my opinion, it just captures people who are already giving and it, and it honors them and incentivizes them and said, you're doing good. And, and we want to encourage that. We want to reward that 
and give you back some of your hard-earned dollars so you can keep giving, you know, paying it forward and giving it to the charities in your community that are doing good. Um, so it captures those people and then encourages the people who maybe don't have the resources to give to charity. It kind of creates that bucket, uh, that, you know, permission bucket, so to speak, that says, yes, okay, I have these extra few dollars. I can do good with them. I have the bandwidth to do that in my budget. I, I can, I can swing that. Well, it, it certainly, it, it's letting the people who are closest to the problem have a very um, decisive, you know, hand in helping to address the problem. And as you'd mentioned earlier, uh, it seems like this would would probably discourage some of that extreme overhead cost that seems to come along with, you know, the greater the bureaucracy administering the the dollars, the more that seem to, you know, stay on their on its fingers. Yeah, it allows people in local communities to engage with charities. There's such little engagement, or it's not as great as it used to be. People are, are kind of moving away from civil society and, and institutions. And, and this would just encourage them to get involved again, um, to have some skin in the game um, and to realize you're not helpless. Um, your neighbors aren't helpless. You can help them. You know, I know inflation's crazy, housing is insane. Like people's budgets are getting squeezed and this would go a long way toward help alleviating some of that pressure. I think one of the advantages I could see here, too, is um, the way that when we just have taxes taken out of our paycheck, we don't really see them. So, you know, it's not like it was ever in our hands, but it's easy to switch your conscience off. So when there is a need, even if you recognize it, it's easy to rationalize. Well, that's, you know, why we pay taxes. So somebody else is going to handle that as opposed to I'm going to make a charitable donation because my conscience says I have a duty to help those people who need this help. Exactly. You're giving agency back to the taxpayer, back to the person in his or her community that should be affecting change if they're able to. And I, I think it's a great piece of legislation. I hope that you and I have a chance to have a conversation down the road where we're celebrating the, the passage of this and, and a return of, of, you know, a degree of power to the people when it comes to these kind of uh, charitable opportunities. Oh, I do too. That's a beautiful thought. Yes. All right. Carolyn Bolton is is our guest. Carolyn, tell people where they can find you on social media, where they can follow your work. Sure. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Care Bolton, like a Michael, B-O-L-T-O-N. And um, you can also visit DonorsTrust.org to learn more about opening a charitable giving account. So you you. can give to great orgs like Deviate. Thank you so much for your time. I hope we talk again soon. Likewise. Thanks so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Young Voices contributor Tyler Cochran to the program. Tyler, since this is your first time aboard, take a moment here. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Uh, yes, first of all, I just wanted to thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you. Um, so I am a uh, master's student at Houston Christian University, where I'm studying uh, for a master's in biblical languages. And I'm also a law student at the University of Iowa. Um, I've been with Young Voices uh, since January as an editorial fellow and hope to continue on in the contributor program uh, over the summer and into the fall. 
Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, and, and I'm really excited for the, the article that we're going to discuss. This is an op-ed that uh, you wrote for townhall.com. Thoughts and prayers are better than wrath and ruin. And wow, is this timely. Uh, go ahead, if you would, Tyler, set the stage for us about, about what this uh, piece is about. Yeah, so in the aftermath of the tragic uh, Covenant school shooting in Nashville at the end of last month, there was a lot of vitriol, I guess would be the best way of describing it, online from people calling for gun control towards people who were offering thoughts and prayers, saying that it's it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't work, and it really that it's just a cowardly act of indifference in the face of this tragedy. And so my goal here was just to to push back against that and say no there's actual some there's actually some really positive outcomes that come from thoughts and prayers and that the the other option uh, that we find most often is this wrath which leads to the perpetuation of conditions that further uh, perpetuate tragedy in our society yeah it's you nailed it you nailed it. I mean, look, when emotions are high following something like a very highly publicized uh, atrocity, um, that seems to be a time when opportunists jump into action. And, and I think they have this in common with the lynch mob. Something has angered them. They feel righteous fury. Something has to be done. We don't have time to think. We just need to act. And it seems like that sets the stage for, <laughs> for some really big problems and maybe even some serious injustice down the road. Yeah, and that's one of the big problems with it is when you act out of anger. And in a situation like this, anger is understandable. You know, we feel helpless and we feel immense grief at the loss of six innocent lives. That's, you know, a genuine evil that we should feel anger about. But when you act rashly out of that anger and you let it control your actions, it takes you on a path that you may not even fully recognize the ramifications that are coming down the road and exhibits uh, a lack of humility because you are presuming that you know the ends of all your actions. It also demonstrates a, a lack of patience that you're unwilling to take a look at what action might be most constructed and positive just to appease sort of your personal feeling of justice in the moment. And then it also demonstrates a clear lack of wisdom, just that, again, that you don't have all the answers and that you think, righteous as your anger may be, that that will lead you down the right path. Beautifully said. Now, politicians, I'm not saying they're right to do this, but I almost expect them to, to be opportunistic when emotions are high. They know they have a, a limited window of opportunity in which, uh, you know, to move the, the Overton window, if you will, to, to get the public to accept things while, while people are still grieving or outraged or so forth. But uh, rationality tends to return after, you know, a, a few days or maybe a couple of weeks. And if they miss that opportunity, well, you know, that, that window's closed, you know, until something else happens. What about, you know, uh, public figures? I mean, you, you mentioned Stephen King, for instance, in, in your article. Talk to me about his comment and, and why, that, uh, why that's a short-sighted approach. Yeah, so uh, Stephen King one of the, was one of the people that stood out to me that was really kind of attacking uh, thoughts and prayers. He said, uh, tweeted out that Republicans should stick their thoughts and prayers where the sun doesn't shine. And there were, that was a pretty common sentiment. Uh, the problem with that is kind of like you said, is that in the aftermath, rationality kind of goes out the window. And that's the importance of thoughts and prayers is that, you know, we who offer them want to see 
things, tragedies like what happened in Nashville, we don't want to see those happen any more than someone like Stephen King does. But we understand that when we take the time to uh, pray about it, that we are opening ourselves up to inspiration, revelation. And even if you even if you don't think, you know, prayer has any sort of actual power in it, there is a positive in sort of taking time to reflect on an issue and appeal to something greater than yourself, just to recognize that in this moment, I have an immense amount of anger. I feel grief in this tragedy, but I don't know what to do. And so I need to take time to, you know, see what are the facts of this case? You know, if you're calling for gun control here, would it have worked? We don't know. What was the specific motivations behind this person? Was there anything we could have done to help them? You don't know when you just say, we have to act now in the, in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy like this. It, it seems to me that uh, there's there's almost a certain amount of hypocrisy in that the, the people who are advocating for gun control are, are relying on thoughts and prayers of a political nature that if we just write these words on a piece of paper, then criminals will be unable to do horrific things. Historically, though, that hasn't been the case. In fact, uh, you know, despite all the laws that are on the books that make so many of these actions leading up to and including, you know, uh, for instance, you know, school shooting, um, it still doesn't stop the criminal, which I guess is more of an illustration that in this world, the, the rules that govern this world, the laws that govern this world, um, unfortunately make it possible for bad people to do bad things. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that we need to, you know, restrict everybody else on the off chance that they might someday think of doing something bad. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing in this situation in particular is that so many people wish there would be a, a one-size-fits-all solution to this, and it, it's just not the case. Reason had a really good piece uh, last year that I actually linked to in the article that talks about how complex it is, the factors that contribute to gun violence, and that because of that, it's almost impossible to pinpoint what actually works and what doesn't. And, you know, for instance... Uh, California has some of the strictest gun laws in the, in the country, and they have relatively low uh, amounts of gun violence on a, on a day-to-day basis, but then they also have one of the highest rates of mass shootings in the country. So presumably you could argue that the gun control works on sort of a smaller level, but then on these on these bigger issues, the things that you know make the news, it's not working. So what what is contributing to that? And it's it's really hard to pinpoint, and so because of that, it's not as easy to, you know, just make this one-size-fits-all policy for, to help stop uh, tragedies like this from occurring again. I was particularly struck by something you point out about where detractors of prayer actually think, well, that, that's a cowardly act of indifference in the face of suffering and malevolence. And, you know, if you've ever known anybody, I'm, I'm thinking specifically, there was a family I knew had a little six-month-old baby who was terribly, terribly sick. It turns out she had appendicitis, but nobody thinks of that in a six-month-old. And this child very nearly died. But I remember this family telling me that uh, when the word went out that their baby was sick, they said they felt the prayers of people who were praying for their child's well-being. So it's hard for me to discount that, uh, well, prayer accomplishes nothing. To some people, obviously, it's, it's, it's a source of strength and, I, I think, perspective. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, not just something that that benefits the person doing it in terms of, you know, giving them time for reflection and opening themselves up to, like I said before, inspiration and revelation, but it also lifts up the recipient. It, you know, 
offers them consolation and it also lets them know that they aren't alone in this and that we recognize the pain and the suffering they're going through and that we want to work with them to prevent that from happening more with them and to other people in the future. Something else I really loved in your article, and I'm, I'm sorry we're, we're up against the clock here, but you talk about how we are limited in our capacity to control the world around us. And until we're willing to accept that, um, we won't find peace. People who want to control everything are going to be very frustrated a lot of the time, aren't they? Yeah, and that's really why prayer is so important here, is that it it recognizes that we don't control all of this. And by appealing to something greater than yourselves, it gives you hope that while I may not be able to stop this from happening, that there is something out there that cares for me, cares for everybody and wants to doesn't want to see this happen to other people. And that if we seek after him genuinely, that he will help guide us to a solution to prevent this as much as we can. Tyler Cochran, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We have a number of new voices joining us on this episode, and I'm happy to welcome Kelsey Underwood. Kelsey, uh, you have uh, you have kind of a unique background, and I wonder if you would just take a moment. I want you to shed your modesty for a moment here and, and tell us about who you are and what you do. Wonderful, Brian. Well, thanks so much for having me. I am currently the Vice President of Product and Strategy for the Georgia Center for Opportunity, Um, What that means is that I have the distinct privilege of working with some really passionate people um, who are enacting different policies, different programs, uh, and and different products to change the way that poverty works in America and hopefully bring more people out of poverty and into economic empowerment and flourishing. Um, So what I get to do is I get to manage the software products that we have. We have two platforms that are are very powerful, one of which is in Georgia and one of which is in 13 different states, mostly in the Southeast and in Utah, that one of them maps out the entire welfare system and allows us to make objective data-based policy decisions. So we work with individuals in different states that are really passionate about helping people move out of poverty and help them see what that landscape looks like so they can make more informed decisions about how to change policies in order to help people get out of those cycles. That sounds like a very ambitious undertaking. And I I say that based on how long has the war on poverty been going on, at least at the federal level? You know, since like the late 1960s? The war on poverty, (laughs) yeah, or since the beginning of of time, really. I mean, there's always been a group that's been trying to work their way up up and out of that. But yeah, abs- absolutely. Probably since mid mid last century is really when it started ramping up. So let's talk about uh, how the system works and, and where the system falls short. And then we can talk about some of the solutions. Absolutely. So I think one of the, the challenges or the misunderstandings around poverty and cycles of poverty in the United States right now is this overly simplified view that if you just pay people more or give them more, that they will be better off. Now, in theory, that makes sense. However, when you're a lot of people use the word systemic, it's a word that has existed forever, but has really popped up in the past five to 10 years when you're looking at systemic problems. Poverty is a systemic problem because the way in which 
the welfare system is structured traps people into poverty. Let me explain a little bit about what that looks like. So you you might have heard over the past couple of years, people talk about this $15 minimum wage living wage, right? And it's just this, it's a blanket wage that people want to implement across every state. Here's the challenge. A lot of people that are working at pay rates close to that, you're looking at that $10 to $15 an hour. They're also on benefits. And that's great. That's what they're there for. I don't think that anyone would argue that people don't need support, especially childcare, food assistance, things like this. They're issues that a lot of people face where they need a little bit of help to make ends meet. And that's okay. The challenge is that a lot of employers don't want to pay that $15 an hour, not because they can't afford it and not because they don't want to out of pure you know, greedy capitalism. It's because people are not accepting those jobs at that pay rate. And the reason they're not doing that is because at a certain pay rate, they lose more benefits than they gain in wages. So it is an economically rational decision for them to not accept that job, not accept that raise, not accept that promotion, because it actually makes them worse off. And that's a situation we call a benefits cliff. So for example, in the state of Georgia, a single mother of two kids, if she's making $14.25 an hour and she's on food assistance, the minute she gets bumped up to $14.60 an hour or $14.50 or whatever that raise is, that $0.25, $0.50 cent raise, she loses almost $8,000 in food assistance. So she's making maybe $500 to $1,000 more a year, and that's before taxes. And she's losing $8,000 for her family. And that's what's trapping people in these cycles. It's also what's preventing employers from offering jobs at higher pay rates because that problem that I just highlighted persists up until about $30, $35 an hour in most states. Wow. So making that jump from 12 to 15 for a company, that's okay. But making a jump from 12 to 35, that's not really financially feasible for a lot of, especially small and mid-sized employers. So you've got this system that really entraps people in this dynamic where they are not able to progress even if they wanted to, and companies are not able to allow them to even if they wanted to because of, of the way that, that it works. Now, I'm, I'm, this is the libertarian in me, the free market mm-hmm. advocate in me that, that wants to speak up and say, the free market could handle this though, couldn't it? I mean, would, would, would the free market help find that, that balance between, you know, what, uh, what is uh, a wage that... Basically, what's worth it for the employer to keep that job or to expand and hire more people versus, well, this is going to raise the cost of everything that we make or everything that we produce or sell because we have you know, to raise those costs accordingly to meet payroll. It's a great question. And as an economics nerd, that's what, my, what I studied a million years ago. Um, free market works beautifully if there is not government intervention. So this is the the issue that is presented is that if you're just looking at a supply and demand chart, that works beautifully if it's just those two lines. But once you add a mandate that says at this pay rate, you cannot progress if you want to continue receiving supplemental income, that's where it breaks that, that concept. And that's what we're really working towards getting resolved is how can we structure the system in a way that it smooths those cliffs out. Somebody's not dropping off and, and losing that $8,000 in one blow. 
Can we reallocate those funds to make it a straight line across so that no one is disincentivized from moving forward and businesses are not disincentivized from finding that market equilibrium, right? That's that's the whole point of it is if you if you have mechanisms in place that disrupt that free market equilibrium, that's where people start suffering. And that's what we're seeing right now. Man, that was a great explanation. Thank you. That's, I mean, I I feel like I understand it pretty well, but I think I just, I got even deeper understanding because of the way you explained that. So talk to me about uh, the the welfare benefits themselves. I understand Mm -hmm. there are people who are definitely with, they're they're in a needy situation. They benefit, they have kids or whatever that that will benefit from this. Um, It's not something that is sustainable though, as, as it keeps growing, eventually, you know, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this, but the bird feeder analogy is if you, if you build a bird feeder, it's going yes. to bring more and more birds to it. Um, yes. Are we seeing any kind of meaningful reform on the part of the states, for instance, to, to um, help lessen that dependency? Or is, is that just too, too difficult a job? So there's this archetype that people like to highlight. There are two of them. There's the greedy capitalist and there's the welfare queen, right? The greedy capitalist doesn't want to pay you more. We find that that is the exception to the rule that is focused upon disproportionately. And there's the archetype or this characterization of a person that wants to take advantage of the system. And it's sort of, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. What we've found with the Georgia Center for Opportunity. And we not only do policy work, we are boots on the ground. We are in the community. We're helping people get jobs. We're helping them get housing and childcare and food assistance. And we're really talking to these individuals. And the general consensus is, I don't want to be in this position. I want to emulate and show my my children that they don't have to live like this, that I want to work hard. I want to provide for them. I, I want to give them an environment that they can improve upon in their adult life, right? Um, that's the that's the majority of people. The issue is that they're in a situation where poverty is survivable and not escapable. So there's one side of the table that says, just give more assistance. Unfortunately, that's the equivalent of filling up a gas tank in a car with a broken engine. It's not going to go anywhere. You can give it more gas, but it's not going to go where you want it to go because it doesn't have the system in place or the the operative mechanisms in place for people to be able to then move from that. So to your question, a lot of these policies are there's federal level, there's state level, and there's local level. And the model that we've created measures at all of those levels. And we are working with people on a state level to say, how do we not disincentivize people from wanting to use these benefits, but incentivize them to progress in their career. And that involves policy change because we have to make it economically rational for them to do that. I like that. Did that answer your question? Oh yeah. I, that's, that that is something I think is long overdue. And you mentioned there, there are a number of States where, where you're doing this kind of work. Um, We're we're down to just about uh, 30 seconds or so, but uh, what are some of the States to keep an eye on that may be leading out in this effort? Utah. By and far, Utah is fantastic. They're one of the only, they are the only state in the United States that is currently allowed by law to integrate all of their systems and match those with workforce. Every other state is currently federally prohibited from doing that, and we're working on changing that, but that has been a very successful model for them. 
we also work very closely with them to to implement some of these policy changes. So I would keep an eye on Utah, both on the business side and the policy side, because there are a lot of very motivated businesses who are looking for ways to better support employees and people that work for them in a way that's not damaging them financially. Kelsey Underwood, I really appreciate us having this conversation. I, I'm feeling hope. You've done your job <laughs> thank well. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you bringing light to it. And thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome Ethan Brown back to the program. Ethan, good to see you once again. Thanks for having me. Happy Earth Week. Oh, it is. You're right. It is. <laughs> oh, I better. Honored. I've got some old tires stacked up. I need to get those things burned and out of here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, was always, that was always my friend's joke. You doing anything for Earth Day? He says he's going to burn tires. I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, that, that'll help. <laughs> so for, look, for the sake of people who are meeting you for the first time, um, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I am the founder and host of The Sweaty Penguin, which is a award-winning comedy climate program presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. We work to make climate issues less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. I'm also a writer and commentator for Young Voices and a general talkative person in the climate world. All right. Now, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for thehill.com, how climate activists badly missed the mark on the Willow Drilling Project. And I am not tight. I'm not tapped into this product project like you are. Tell me a little bit about the, the Willow Drilling Project, and then let's, let's talk about how they missed the mark. So the Willow Drilling Project is an oil project in the North Slope of Alaska, it would. It's uh, from ConocoPhillips, who had this land lease for a couple decades, I believe. And this project would um, the approved version. It, it got approved in March, and they're planning to set up three drill pads that would extract oil. And in total, the amount of oil they extract would lead to, I believe, 287 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions, which is equivalent to the annual emissions of Taiwan. Uh, it will also bulldoze through habitats of caribou, moose, birds, etc. Um, and there's been an interesting debate as to whether the pros outweigh the cons or the cons outweigh the pros. And I uh, decided to poke that beehive, which uh, <laughs> was an interesting thing to do. So um, I guess the first thing I want to, I want to just get, get where you stand on this was, I, I know the Biden administration seemed to, to have taken a very um, strong stance against further oil and gas exploration. It seems like they shut down uh, a lot of avenues by which we would be pursuing uh, more energy independence. Um, did you say this was approved? So uh, were, were they lightening up some of some of those restrictions? So the Biden administration has actually approved a lot more oil and gas leases than people realize. But this project did get approved and it got a, a smaller version of it got approved. So ConocoPhillips initially proposed five drill pads. They ended up approving three of the five drill pads, which would still extract like 90% of the oil they intended to. But what's tricky with this project is there's a lot of 
environmental concerns. There's a lot of economic and security concerns that I brought up. There is a Native community that lives right next to the project that has been very vocally against it. However, the majority of Alaska representatives and even Alaska Native communities in the North Slope have expressed support for this project. And that's understandable. Alaska has one of the uh, worst economies of, or worst state economies based on a variety of metrics. And this project kind of came in and was promising a lot of royalties that would go directly to these communities. So I completely understand why they were excited about this project, but this was such a unique situation where native communities were supporting this happening. That that doesn't happen much. So I kind of came in and was just saying like, look, I don't know about this as well as they do. They're locals. They've been there the longest. So whatever I feel from a climate perspective, I also want to listen to them and appreciate what they have to say. Interesting. So, so the people who were pushing back hardest against it may have been doing so without the kind of local knowledge that the people most likely to be affected by it would have. Yeah, I found it telling how some of the feedback I was getting on what I was saying, which was really just let's listen and hear what they have to say. Uh, people were pointing to specific Native Alaskans that were opposed to the project. But even the petition that has over 5 million signatures, I just checked today, that was opposed to the project, it says in the description that while the majority of Alaska Natives support this project, dot, dot, dot. So I don't think that's up for dispute. If it is, I'd love to be proven wrong. But from all the research I did, it sounded like there is a lot of support for the project in that community. And again, I, I feel as someone in the lower 48 states, like, who am I to tell them what to do on their land? Okay. Well, that's, I got to say, it's refreshing to, to hear someone, you know, say that, you know, maybe just because I feel a certain way, I may not know what's, what's best. Um, I, I wish that we could see more of that approach, you know, with, without most, within most of the regulatory agencies. Now, are there alternatives that, uh, that would be, better in terms of revenue, better in terms of uh, less carbon emissions and so forth uh, for the people of Alaska? I think so. I think that Alaska has incredible opportunity for cleaner energy industries. Alaska was one of the first states to explore geothermal. Alaska already generates a huge amount of electricity through hydropower, even wind. They have significant resources along their coast. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there to not just create these industries and grow these industries, but you can also preserve this incredible environment. I mean, I'm sure you've seen pictures of Alaska's landscapes. It's just incredible. I I would love to go sometime. I hope that happens soon. So that's that's a win-win. And then at the same time, you're, you're not emitting more carbon. And in terms of the energy independence question, I think we may be overestimating or underestimating how difficult it will be to actually get this oil from the North Slope of Alaska all the way down to the United States. Most of our refineries are in the Louisiana, Texas area. To get there, you'd have to go all the way down through the Panama Canal. <laughs> That's further than Venezuela, to give an example. So um, I, I think 
there there's ways around that, of course, but I think there's a lot of opportunity if we look to other industries and I think Alaska natives, if it's structured correctly, could not only get more money from it, but they could get more stability since the price of oil jumps around so much. They could get uh, they could preserve their environment, preserve their health. So a lot of opportunity. But again, that wasn't what fell in their lap. Willow was. So I, I understand why they're excited about it. Just out of curiosity, I'd love to get your take on on pipelines. Uh, just yeah. we've had a couple of pretty high profile uh, railroad uh, accidents that uh well let's just say the optics didn't look real good the big black cloud of smoke you know <laughs> hanging over ohio but uh, uh what what about pipelines are are they a viable way for for transporting you know that kind of oil or is that is that also something that that causes ecological concerns absolutely i think there's always land concerns with pipelines and so often pipelines are actually run through indigenous land and there are real battles where indigenous communities are fighting against this happening on their land. Often they'll also run through majority minority communities or low income communities. And you'll see some maps where they get routed in some, some strange ways. Uh, In addition, environmentally, when you have a pipeline, you need to, at least for gas, you need to have compressor stations along the pipeline where the purpose of the compressor station is to actually leak out gas to change the pressure Um, that's emitting gas while purely wasting that energy. So I will say pipelines are a lot safer than just driving a truckload full of oil or putting it on a train, but there, there are certainly concerns there. And again, seeing how indigenous communities have fought so hard against many of these pipeline projects, that was why I was so intrigued to see them more supportive of Willow. So, so where do they go from here? We've got about a minute or so left, but uh, is is the Willow Project likely to to deliver anything in terms of, of of energy production? It looks like it'll happen. The actual Native communities probably won't see any economic benefit until at least five years down the line, and I, they better if if this is happening. But additionally, what I want people to realize is in approving this project, the uh, administration also blocked all future drilling in the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas to the north of Alaska and oh, I think around half of the leases in the National Petroleum Reserve. That alone will save billions of tons of carbon emissions as compared to the 287 million from Willow. So while a lot of climate activists were upset about Willow, I think it's important to, to understand that some good did come out of this discussion, and that's that's a big deal to to see that saving. Is it too soon to call it a win-win? We'll have to see. That's I think there's too much nuance to okay. use that term. Fair enough. But that is hopefully that's what we we will eventually see, right? That that would be great. I, I would love to see that. All right, we're talking with Ethan Brown. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as the host of and the creator of The Sweaty Penguin. Ethan, where can people follow you online? You can find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at pbs.org slash Promise. You can find Sweaty Penguin on social media as well or myself on Twitter at EthanBrown5151. 